standing in line Sunday night outside the Beacon Theater here in New York City with my friend AJ. We're there for the final night of a three-night run by Bob Dylan. This is the resumption of a Bob Dylan tour that has been referenced as the never-ending tour, a reference that apparently Dylan hates as he points out that there are plenty of actual stops and starts in any given year of this tour. Still, the fact remains that this is the current iteration of Dylan's now 33-year odyssey around the world, playing upwards of 75 to 80 shows a year, starting in 1988 and continuing uninterrupted until December 2019, when, after a few months' break into 2020, COVID arrived and scotched Dylan's plans to continue bringing the music to the people for all of 2020, and only resuming last month in November 2021, which is where we are today. No other touring act can really even compare to that track record. And for Dylan, it's not about the cash to be had as a touring rock entity. You know, that's certainly there for him. Uh, Although his preferred venues are smaller houses of 1,000 to 3,000 seat theaters, usually. No arenas. Although he could probably fill Madison Square Garden with the right type of show and the right type of band. But the show and the band that he has been doing for much of these 33 years, is really geared towards this theater experience. And I think that's very purposeful. I don't think he wants to do the arena uh, with 25,000 people. I don't think it's practical to do the intimate 100 to 500 seat arrangement. I think it's this sweet spot of 1,000 to 3,000 seats, which lends and intimacy to things. And given the fact that in popular cities like New York, Los Angeles, he's going to do a string of three or four or more nights in a row while camped out at a theater, it affords him and his band and and the attendees the chance to stretch out a bit, be comfortable, as opposed to finishing a show, getting on the bus, driving to the next town, repeat, repeat. So this is not that type of concert tour. And that's part of what makes it so special uh, to go see Dylan. And it's why I'm recording this episode, which is to encourage you, even if you don't think you're interested in Bob Dylan, to go and see this tour. I'm confident that he's going to be playing near you, wherever you are in the world, because the announced dates of this tour on his website run through 2024. I told you it was the never-ending tour. Incidentally, the very last concert I attended pre-pandemic was a couple of the November 2020. No, 2020? November 2020. I've lost actually time in the pandemic. November 2020 or November 19, 2019. Pandemic started when? We're talking 2019. (laughs) Completely lost an entire year here in my brain. So, yes. Right. AJ and I are there in line to enter the Beacon Theater, which is a beautiful, ornate Art Deco theater that was built in 1929. It's been the site of so many legendary rock performances over the years, The Stones, legendary multi-night Allman Brothers runs, on and on. It's one of the special advantages of living in a place like New York City that these amazing theaters are run and run very well. The Dylan line, the ticket line, the line to get into the theater is, is a friendly, a largely adult line. It's not particularly rowdy. Ironically, even though the show is based off of Dylan's album called Rough and Rowdy Ways, But there are clearly people in line that go back in age to the earliest Dylan, New York City, West Village folk years. There are hipsters. There's a few puffs of pot smoke, but that's really any sidewalk in New York these days. There was one odd juxtaposition. There's a thing uh, in the jam band scene called the Nitrous Mafia. These are people 
it's really a gang, an organized gang that sells nitrous oxide balloons in concert parking lots for $10 a balloon. And it's very ruthlessly controlled. And it's kind of an ugly sideshow aspect to some of the uh, jam band touring scene. It's apparent if you go to a Dead & Company show at a place like Madison Square Garden. So one member of this Lot Lizard crew was antically and loudly trying to sell $10 balloons of nitrous to the line, much to the annoyance of most everyone in the line, and certainly to the annoyance of the Beacon security staff. It's not really a nitrous balloon kind of crowd, you know, the Dylan show. In fact, in our half-hour wait in the line for Vax card and ticket checks, I didn't see one single person buy or consume a balloon. In fact, one of the guys standing behind us said that at first when he saw the, the vendor walking down holding aloft, you know, a, a bundle of six or seven pink balloons, he thought, oh, it's somebody's birthday tonight. So anyway, AJ and I are in line, and we're chatting, and I'm telling AJ about the Dylan show that I had attended on Friday because I went to the first night of this three-night run. And there's a woman and her two friends in front of us. She's in her, you know, I'd say mid-60s, and they're in their probably mid or mid-60s or 70s. She's with another couple, and she overhears me say that I had attended Friday night's Dylan show, and she turned around to chat about the show. Oh, you went to Friday. How was it, et cetera? Now, this Dylan tour is different because he has a new album of material out. As I said, it's called Rough and Rowdy Ways. It's an aptly named album of mostly mid-tempo ballads, rangy, sometimes randy, comically riled-up Americana, I would say. It's, it's a great album. It's his first album of new material since 2012, so it's kind of a big deal in the Dylan-verse. And I'm happy to say that at 80 years of age, this album ranks among really the great albums of his career. You know, it's a solid, complete Uh, work that stems from a very specific style and vibe and time. You know, it's perhaps not the towering genre-changing efforts of the 60s or the 70s, but it's very much at home on the shelf next to albums like Modern Times and Love and Theft, another late-career Dylan classic albums. He's 80. (laughs) Bob Dylan's 80 years old and will tour the world playing upwards of 80 gigs a year for the next two years. It's incredible. And not least because the songs in the new album represent a completely now present contemporary moment, even as they do reach back referentially to the rich history of American roots music and really the historical record of the nation from the 20s to today. Uh, The single Murder Most Foul, which is like a 16-minute epic story involving, you know, the Kennedy assassination and other tangled aspects of American history from the early 60s and a litany of song references is, uh, is not performed during these concerts to date, uh, which is unfortunate. I was kind of hoping maybe he'd break it out on that final night. You know, when you're at a concert, you always kind of hope that you're going to be present for something special. When the Dylan show ended on Sunday night, I knew because I'd been looking online at the set lists that he's essentially playing pretty much the same set list every night. And once we heard the last song, I knew it was the last song, but AJ was kind of still hoping that, you know, maybe it's New York City, maybe this prolonged applause would bring Dylan back out for one more. And it kind of, it was infectious and it kind of caught me too. And I thought, thought, sort of thought, oh, maybe he will come back out. But then of course the roadies came out, they turned on the house lights and and we, we, we left. So Previous tours, uh, as I said, I've been going to these probably since the early 90s. Went with my friend Raft, I think my first one in Groton, Connecticut. He just gave me the dates of when we went. That was in 93. Previous Dylan tours have very much been a kind of a greatest hits gig in that, you know, you're likely to hear 15 or 20 songs that span most of his catalog, skipping some specific records. But, you know, pretty much every one of these songs you're familiar with. Even as people who've seen a lot of Dylan will know, he typically is changing the arrangement, arrangements to songs to such a degree that it's kind of a thing at a concert where you kind of have this expectant, pregnant pause while he goes through the first verse of some songs. And then when he sings the recognizable chorus, everyone applauds and is like, oh, right, it's that song. 
So he famously messes with the arrangements of the back catalog, which is something you'd probably do too if you were in your 60th year of performing uh, the same songs. I say the same songs, but I mean his back catalog is probably six or 700 songs. So of those, the most notable and known, probably number 40, 50, 60, 100, you know, with, with a lot of other ones that are there, but that's probably the core of the greatest hits catalog. But so anyway, Deborah, who's this woman's name, was with this, this couple, uh, these people in their early 70s or late 60s, who had asked us what they might expect at the show. I was aware that, you know, unlike the 2019 tour, that a little context might be in order. As I had wished, it was kind of in order for me uh, on Friday night because this is not a typical Dylan show, or at least it's not typical in the context of what came before it. But that's very much the point for Dylan, I think. He's always been exactly where he is. He's in that moment. He's an artist who certainly is aware of his legacy, even as I think he rejects performative fealty to that legacy. He definitely leaves that to the shrewd moves of managers and business people. I think the business of Bob Dylan, the internet presence of Bob Dylan is all very, very effectively and savvily managed. And I think it ensures a steady stream of vital and interesting archival material is released selectively from his legendary vaults and archives. So I asked Deborah not to mansplain to her, but to kind of offer some context. Well, have you seen him perform lately? Because it is a little different than what I might have expected since I last saw him in 2019. That's not a bad thing, I said. It's just very much about this new album, and it's definitely not a jukebox greatest hits show. And Deborah said, well, the last time I saw Dylan was 1965 in Newport, Rhode Island. So, you know, if you, for those who are unfamiliar with the Dylan lore, this little concert, Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival in 1965, even if you're not a Dylan fan, even if you're not a rock and roll fan, even if you're not 52 like I am, you've probably heard of, you know, quote, Dylan goes electric and the supposed furor that erupted when Dylan, already doing, by the way, in 1965, what you can experience him doing right now in 2021, namely doing exactly what he wants to do, looking forward, never looking back. Dylan, to the supposed, and I say supposed because like most earth-shattering events, stories vary from something that would lead you to believe that thousands of outraged folkies stood and screamed that Dylan Dare show up on stage with electrified instrumentation to versions where a very small cadre of hardcore acoustic folk music musos had their performative working man's overalls and engineer caps all in a twist. But probably the vast majority of people there just kind of dug the scene. And Deborah was in that category. She tells us that she was babysitting in Newport in 1965, as she put it, at a rich family's house. And I think the family that she was babysitting for gave her and some friends tickets to the folk festival. And so she went, and she was there inadvertently for probably one of the most infamous or famous rock concerts in American history. So AJ asked her half-jokingly, so were you one of the people who was angry that Dylan went electric? And she said, you know, it didn't even really register for us. She elaborated that as a then-teenager, you know, the wares and the whys of who showed up on stage and what kind of guitar was not even really remotely something they would have preconceived notions about or even really cared about. 
She may have further elaborated that comestible, smokable substances may have played a role in her lack of total engagement, but we won't get into that. So we went on to have a really pleasant chat with these three folks as we all wended our way into the beacon and navigated the nitrous balloon sellers and other people looking for tickets and the scalpers trying to bizarrely buy tickets from people in line to then resell two blocks down the street. I'm not sure how that works. So then a funny moment happened where Deborah and her two friends were in front of us and AJ and I were behind them. And then there was another guy who I kind of noticed out of my peripheral vision just appeared to my right and somehow made his way past me and now was sort of standing with Deborah's group. And then he was kind of head of their group. And having just been to a concert on Friday, I saw plenty of examples of people who kind of haven't been out of the house in two years behaving badly, rudely, strangely, weirdly. I don't really think too much about it because I kind of think we all need to readjust to being out in public with each other. So like Deborah in Newport of 1965, I was content to just be heading in. And if anyone got in ahead of me, well, I hope it worked out for them. Deborah, however, (laughs) was one of those New Yorkers who kind of understands intrinsically that there's a certain way that you do things and there's a certain way you don't do things. So I hear her say to this guy who's He's kind of like a little scruffy. He's got his earbuds in. He's by himself. He's probably their same age. He looked kind of in his mid-60s. I think he was wearing like a, a, a Buffalo Bills or some kind of NFL logo jacket. He kind of looked like somebody's ne'er-do-well drunkle who spends a lot of his time at the track and or the off-track betting locale. So I hear Deborah say to him, excuse me, sir, did you just materialize from somewhere? He was kind of unresponsive to that. So she turned to us and said, did you see that? Where, where did he come from? There's a line, right? And I kind of jokingly said, yeah, I'd been at a concert on Friday, and I was perhaps a little jaded by obnoxious fan behavior. In fact, I went to the Friday show, as I said, with my wife, and I'll confess that I do have a strange concert and movie habit, which I'm going to tell against myself because it's kind of embarrassing. Sometimes I'll purchase an extra seat for the two of us. If my wife and I are going somewhere... Like if it's the winter, sometimes it's for the coats, right? So you're all bundled up in New York City. You've got your coat, your hat, your scarf, your gloves. To put all that behind you on your seat or sort of you're not going to put it on the floor, uh, it's nice to have a seat for the coats. So sometimes I do that. Sometimes it's just for the extra room. And in an admitted overabundance of should we even be going to a concert on Friday night, when I bought the Dylan seats, I, I did get an extra seat. So when she and I got to our row, there was a guy in our, quote unquote, extra seat. I didn't think too much about it because we were on the aisle anyway. And he was kind of obviously chatting with two friends who were sitting in the row behind us. It, it ended up being kind of a warmer night in New York. So we didn't actually have coats. So we let it go. We didn't say, excuse me, sir, but I think you might be in one of our extra seats. Because of course, that would be embarrassing. Even though I wouldn't do what longtime listeners of the pod will recall as a, quote, Fusener Splain, so named from my friend Ben, uh, who must always provide total strangers with detailed background context and information on all things, even when, and maybe especially if, they're clearly not interested. I love this about Ben. I definitely love hearing about it when this happens to Ben. And I less so love being physically present for it when Ben does it. But anyway, we sat down, we sort of agreed to table the issue of the extra seat, perhaps to be revisited if and when required during the course of the show. Well, of course, no sooner do the lights go down, uh, promptly at 8 p.m., by the way. Thank you, Bob. Bob Dylan runs an incredibly efficient evening out. So if you're like me and you appreciate things that run about 90 minutes without intermission— and they get you out onto the street at 9.45, having concluded a fantastic evening, Bob Dylan Rough and Rowdy Ways Tour is for you because the show starts exactly at 8 p.m. And it finishes, I think, 9.45 I was out on Friday, and I think it ended at 9.37 the night AJ and I were there, which is a bit more energetic of a night, so I think they may have played things a little faster. So anyway, we're in our seats. The lights go down. And the latecomers are arriving and taking their seats, you know, in the rows in front of us. That's, you know, that's a concert. It's annoying. But these are the things you have to deal with when you've got two or 3,000 human beings gathering together for events. And this guy that's in our extra seat is kind of up on his feet immediately screaming, sit down, to anyone within 10 rows of us. Now, 
we're kind of in the seats on the side of the beacon, so they're actually angled towards the stage. So even someone sitting in the row or a few rows ahead of us isn't actually blocking our view. Like, we still have an unimpeded view to the stage and to Dylan, but for this guy, it's some sort of affront to his sense of timeliness and concert decorum. So he's yelling at everyone, and uh, my wife's kind of cringing. So he's shouting every few minutes, but he's also, to be honest, kind of hulking and speaking to his friends in some kind of Slavic language, and uh, he reeks of some kind of fermented beverage. So I decided to live and let live. So I'm telling Deborah and her friends this story, and I'm saying in relation to this guy cutting the line that we've all been cooped up, and it's a rock concert, and I was reminded that if you allow yourself to get your eye pulled towards every person having some kind of a weird issue or problem or drug convulsion or being injected for taking pictures, you know, you're never going to actually enjoy what's going on in front of you. And uh, they're kind of like, yeah, good point. You know, and another thing about The Dylan Show is there are absolutely no pictures taken with your phone. And they seriously police this. They have security guards going up and down the aisle. It's unobtrusive. You don't tend to notice it again if you keep your attention fixated as it should be on the stage and on the music. You won't even really notice this. But if someone is remiss enough to take out their phone and try to take a picture of the stage or make a recording, probably more to the point, uh, they, they shine a flashlight on the person and you get basically one warning. If you do it again, you're out. I've seen them eject numerous people. So anyway, Deborah and her friends are kind of like, yeah, that's a good point. And the guy that had cut the line ended up moving to the line next to us anyway. So he was much closer to the nitrous mafia guy with the balloons and probably being more annoyed than we were. So that was great. And we kind of continued our way, wending through the line into the beacon. This actually was a huge problem for me in going to concerts in what we like to call the good old, bad old, good old days when my friends and I went to Grateful Dead shows in the 80s. As you can imagine, in an often heightened state of awareness, the parade of sheer human freakitude is often enough to suck your attention in. One time my friend Chris and I went to see Pink Floyd at the Nassau Coliseum in Long Island in 1988. This was the Momentary Lapse of Reason Tour. Our pre-show meal consisted of one very large mushroom, cap, full stem, split down the middle. We parked. We, Chris went into this line inside a glass cube right outside the Coliseum where the will call office was located for tickets. Given that this was 1988, if you didn't have tickets mailed to your home, you had to go to the will call center window, wait in line, present your ID to some sort of middling authority figure, hopefully receive your tickets without any hassles, and go on your way to the show. Half a mushroom in, of course, these friction points become freighted with possibility and paranoia. Chris, my friend, was a six-foot-four guy with a huge unruly mop of curly brown hair. He was wearing a searingly yellow and red and blue tie-dye. He was visible from about 16 miles away from the Coliseum. And as the fungus wound its way through our central nervous systems, Chris, to me, seemed to stand eight or nine feet tall. And though we were separated by a distance of probably 25 or 30 yards while I waited outside the cube for him to go through the will call line, at the exact, I mean the exact same moment though we were separated, he turned and I turned and our eyes met and we shook our heads with the exact same sense of, oh my God, feeling as these mushrooms began to kick in. Prior to that moment, I had been engaged in a one-sided conversation with a very nice man and his young son. This very nice man was clearly an old-school Pink Floyd fan of the 70s era itself, and he was clearly taking his young son to 
his first concert and sharing with him the music that meant so much to him growing up. And in this guy's enthusiasm, he sort of engaged me in conversation. What about I cannot even say because I was instantly overcome with my own deep personal feelings about my own father and my distance from him, something I regretted but was unable at this young age to remedy or navigate. I pantomimed some version of what someone in a conversation would do. And then Chris and I kind of connected eyes again through the will call glass, and all of a sudden I heard the sound of clopping horse hooves, and I stopped paying attention. Now, I know I was thinking what you're probably thinking, which is, Hallucinization, hallucinations, right? Hallucinations. But no, worse, actual, real, mounted Long Island cops on horses. It was an armada of creaking leather, truncheons hanging ominously by braided leather cords, black leather gloves squeezing reins, horses blowing froth from flaring nostrils. If you've ever encountered a mounted police officer, they really do loom eight or nine feet above you. They have blue helmets and sunglasses. It was like being inside one of the animated sequences in Pink Floyd's The Wall movie. Sounds were apparently coming from one of the cops' mouths, or was it his horse? I couldn't be sure. The words were visible. They had really stark, jagged fonts, and they kind of emanated like thunderbolts from the guy's mouth. And though I was becoming incapable of hearing actual human speech, let alone making it myself, I was instead attuned microscopically to the sound of my own blood beating in my veins. And how is it even possible that the human heart once started simply just keeps on beating forever? This seems inescapably improbable. And I resolve in that moment to live each moment to its fullest. These jagged fonts from the cop's mouths piece themselves together and they kind of get through my thoughts and they, inside my frontal cortex they reassemble and I hear it as, yes, can't stand here, keep moving. So I take my leave of this living topiary of my relationship with my absent father and just walk away from this poor guy and his kid who probably are like, wow. And Chris, thankfully, at this point is exactly emerging from the glass ticket hut with a very large grin on his face. So we go into the Coliseum and we take our seats. Now, when you're a Pink Floyd fan as a teenager— you know, in our era, we were very accustomed to looking for clues. We wanted to find clues on the albums. We wanted to find out everything that we could about the songs. You know, there were voices layered in the music. There were backwards voices. There were heartbeats that went through an album. There were references to doomed acid casualty Sid Barrett. You, you actually examined vinyl records for things that might be scratched in the area between the label and the last groove. Like, this is what we did, kids, in the 80s. And for those of us not old enough in 1988 to have seen actual Pink Floyd, this was our first live experience of the music. And sure enough, just like we would have hoped, they did have surprises, okay? For one thing, it became apparent to me as Chris and I climbed to our nosebleed seats near the rafters of the Long Island Coliseum that the band had clearly given very explicit instructions to the house staff to turn off the lights slowly sequentially over like a period of what must have been hours so that the atmosphere adjusted slowly, subtly, you know, not for Pink Floyd, like we're going to flip a huge switch and everything is going to be plunged into darkness dramatically. No, no, no. These guys had thought all this stuff out or so it seemed to me at the time. And at the same time, they're kind of pumping some light smoke into the arena. And it's kind of this expectant haze and if you kind of tuned out all the pre-show chatter going on around you, you became aware that there was a human heartbeat playing through the sound system, quietly but definitely there. Or maybe it was my own. We'll probably never know. I should say that the Nassau Coliseum was one of the worst arenas ever built in America. It was primarily a hockey barn for the formerly great Long Island Islanders hockey team. 
but the building was kind of already past its prime once they put it up. And the seats were pitched so, so, so starkly down that if you were at the very top row, it seemed like you could pour a beer directly onto a person's head sitting, you know, 200 yards below you in the very front row. So it was not a great place to be in the nosebleeds, but that's where we were. And I I should add also, as an aside, that Chris had a very unique style of dancing, which consisted of him in a blur of tie-dye and curls catching these balls of energy that in his mind were being thrown directly at him by the bands and then both returning them to the band and to the arena, spreading the love around the arena as if in some highly complicated and routinized spontaneity that only he knew the patterns of. It was definitely a wonder to behold, although my imagination was equally captured by the spilled beer puddle emerging beneath my seat because the guy a row behind me had knocked over his drink. So Chris and I were two different uh, types of capable, I suppose you could say. So anyway, fully by now in thrall to various uh, psilocybin, azorensins, molecules flowing through our veins. Chris and I took our seats. And what then happened, what I'm about to tell you, really, I know, can't be true. But I also know that it is. It actually happened. tries but misunderstands so what happened was and again we were way up probably three four rows from the top there was a group of friends kind of in my mind's eye they look like typical 1970s long island friends like they're in their 20s their mid-20s they have long hair they're wearing denim jeans, maybe jean jackets, kind of stoner looking, kind of like from a different time. You know, I've talked a lot about how the town that I was in for high school, uh, West Haven, was sort of 10 years behind the times in terms of the fashions and the styles that people were wearing, so that in 88, it looked like 1978. This is exactly the same thing. These guys were dressed like a group of stoner friends out of the mid-70s in 1988. And what they were doing was they were carrying another member of their party up the stairs in a wheelchair. And he was deposited in the seat directly in front of me. I was on the aisle and this guy was put in the seat in front of me and his wheelchair was unfolded next to him in the actual aisle. Again, we were only two or three rows from the very top of the stadium. So I think the idea of accessibility and, you know, not blocking exits was not quite as, uh, enforced as it is today, regardless of anything else that was going on around me, my entire being cellularly locked into this guy and his presumed life story in my head, what his challenges were, his essential decency and good humor, his determination to meet the world where it stood and not to give up. I very nearly wept in empathic response to this stimula, okay? I envisioned that he had lost the use of his legs in some sort of tragic Monte Carlo SS Long Island car accident, probably heading back from the package store. Losing the use of his lower extremities, yes, but not his ardor for the music of Pink Floyd. all going on in my mind, of course. None of it has any relation to what the guy's actual story was. Uh, So I'm sitting there and this guy turns to me and Chris and he shouts very loudly and very longly, pig, pig. And people start slapping hands with the guy. And I understand, we all understand, he's expressing glee at finally perhaps glimpsing the rumored appearance of the giant inflatable pig that the band 
deployed to motor around the arenas in the back half of the concert. This is this pig is in reference to, you know, the wall. It's uh, their animal, their their album animals. Like it's one of the visual reference points of the Pink Floyd iconography. And they had things at this concert like a plane crashing from the rafters. They had a floating pig. All of this stuff. So everyone's going pig, pig. You know, yeah, a near violent manic energy shift occurred in the entire, what felt like the entire arena, but it was really probably just row, you know, XX22 at the Nassau Coliseum. People are handing this guy joints and beers and clapping him on the back. He's like the hero of our section. Chris, you know, generally being far more composed than I, even in the best of circumstances, manages to meet this guy, this pig guy, exactly where that guy was. He's slapping hands and eagerly acknowledging his own Chris-like enthusiasm for the remote-controlled flight of an inflatable pig. I, however, was an ectoplasmic puddle in a chair. Now, Chris, he was in possession this evening, 1988, Nassau Coliseum, Pink Floyd, of a substance called KIF, K-I-F, which a quick search on Google tells me is the trichome of marijuana, a green powdery substance that falls from dry marijuana, high in THC, and other cannabinoid compounds. So when collected, this powder, this highly concentrated uh, THC, forms a very potent form of marijuana. It was very expensive. It was a connoisseur's item. It was to be very carefully handled and smoked. It was not to be bandied about like, you know, some mere concert joint. This was some extremely high-end, rarefied stuff. And this is what Chris had. So anyway, the lights are continuing to go off one by one. The heartbeat's getting louder and louder. And my heartbeat, I don't even know what's going on. I'm just kind of getting lost in all the stuff that's going on. And the concert starts. And I can only pay attention the whole time. This is my point that I wasn't saying to Barbara because I didn't fuse and explain this to her. I'm doing it to you instead. I can only pay attention to this guy in front of me with the wheelchair in the aisle, continuing to imagine all the minutia of his life, his good fortune to have these friends who carry him all the way up to the nosebleed seats, his, his unvarnished, raw, and full-throated appreciation for Floyd and for Pig. Pig! Chris intoned into my ear his plan to share the kef with the pig guy. I turned in aghast wonder and trepidation. No, I simply said, no, this, no, no, that's not a good idea. But Chris, in his general jaunty enthusiasm, was undaunted. His good cheer, his willingness to share the magic of the calf with the pig guy. Who else, Chris implored me, perhaps non-verbally, deserves to have his mind blown so thoroughly when the pig does make an appearance, how could we not help transport him to the highest of all levels? I felt that in retrospect, that was a good and possibly perspective alternating theory, and I nodded in affirmation. So Chris very carefully, very carefully packed the smoking apparatus with the fine, powdery, hard-to-handle, extremely potent kef. This was no small feat in the nosebleed seats in the middle of a Pink Floyd concert in Long Island in 1988, but Chris had all this mathematical dexterity, and somehow this, in my mind, seemed to be aiding him in his task. He was tapping and tamping and doing all sorts of things with his long fingers, and Chris leans over, taps the pig guy on the shoulder, and they engage in a conversation which I couldn't hear. After all, I mean, Pink Floyd is playing, by the way, or at least uh, everyone in Pink Floyd except for Roger Waters, which, well, that's for another podcast. But that's what's going on. Not that I'm really capable of paying attention to that. 
through some kind of osmosis and like psychic connection to my friend, I sort of grok that Chris is imparting to the pig guy the notion that he has something very special. But one must be very careful with this special offering. It's extremely, extremely strong. And you definitely don't want to commit the cardinal sin of blowing the bowl, right? Which is when you cough into a smoking implement and cause the substance in the bowl to eject from said bowl, thus removing the possibility that the next person in line will be able to uh, enjoy the sacrament, as you might say. So I can see that Chris is explaining this to the pig guy, or trying to, in his own version of Fusener explaining. And I can see that the pig guy is very touched and very appreciative of Chris thinking of him in this way. He's nodding and understanding and agreement. He's also kind of like has one eye on the concert, which is after all what he's there for. So Chris passes him the apparatus, the uh, exact description of which escapes me, but he, he lights a match, definitely not a lighter, because you would not use butane with the kef, you understand. You would not want the butane to ruin the fine collected powders and grains. So the pig guy is holding the pipe, and Chris touches a match on the kef, and the pig guy takes a huge hit, defying the advice clearly given to him by Chris. I mean, huge. And out loud, I say, oh, no, because I know what's going to happen. And then it happens. The pig guy coughs, but he still has his mouth on the pipe. The, th the smoke is so thick and resinous in his throat that the cough goes back through the pipe and the resinous, glowing, extremely potent, extremely expensive, burning ember of kiff goes flying out of the bowl like a cannon round, and it leaves a little jet trail of highly intoxicating but now thoroughly wasted smoke en route to fizzle out in some other beer puddle a few rows down from where we're sitting. Next, I see the pig guy do this kind of really impressive instantaneous stoner slash concert math, right? Which is like he, within a millisecond, decides the only real course of action is not to waste concert time having a detailed conversation with Chris about like what happened, but just to kind of instead act as if nothing at all happened. And he just hands the bowl back to Chris. And Chris is far too polite to, to do anything, but take it back and then sort of look at me. And I just, I will never forget him looking at me and giggling uncontrollably. And without words, our brains were communicating with each other. In his laugh, he's saying, can you believe what just happened? And my mind is saying back, yes, yes, I can believe it. In fact, it seemed preordained. How could it have gone any other way? So a couple songs go by, and I'm sitting there with my mind running a billion calculations a minute about things like genes and muscle cars and friendship and the connection between brain and limb. And Chris is standing there and, and catching energy beams and distributing them with generosity and goodwill. And then it was happening. The pig was appearing. It emerged in a cloud of smoke right near the Islanders' hockey scoreboard. The entire arena erupted. The entire arena, or maybe it was just Chris and I, turned towards the pig guy for this was his moment, his declared stated moment. This guy, so deserving in all of our minds of that which he desired, well, maybe this wasn't the thing he desired most. This is probably second on the list, but this thing he wanted very much in this moment He'd said so in so many words, or at least one prolonged word, pig, pig. Everyone shouted, pig. And the pig guy, he was asleep. Kiff, it, it, he passed out. He'd, he'd gotten enough THC before blowing the bowl that his nervous system just shut down, and he was completely passed out. He completely missed the pig, and he slept through probably 25 or 30 minutes of the concert, and he woke up only during the encore of the show. 
He woke up as if nothing had happened and he immediately shouted, pig, and nobody had the heart to tell him otherwise. In a nutshell, that's kind of what I was trying to explain to Deborah that, you know, there's always going to be some crazy shit going on around us at concerts, and we should really probably just try and focus on the music. So anyway, Dylan, listen, go and see this tour. It's playing somewhere near you, and go and see it because it's an understated kind of theatrical presentation of rock and roll music, but it has kind of a a classic style, a Grand Ole Opry style. It's got a sense of class, of simplicity, these guys in the band are all wearing suits. You know, they've dressed up for this occasion. It's, it's a performance. They're performing this for you. You know, it's, it's not about the performative aspect of rock and roll played live. It's a calling for Dylan. He's spoken about this. You know, it's about bringing the music to the people. The stage is extremely underplayed. It's, it's lit from underneath, which adds this kind of cool warmth to everything. There are no spotlights or light shows or lasers or anything like that. There's just these 50-foot curtains surrounding the back and the sides of the stage. They change color as the floor changes color and as the songs change. And this is just Bob Dylan bringing the music to the people, living on the road, living in a tour bus for months and months. Um, As I said, he's spoken about this as as a calling, as a service. You know, it's something that he's well aware of. He doesn't do this like this. Really, there's very few others, if anyone, who's going to do it, and certainly no one at his stature and level, because he's Bob Dylan. And Dylan being exactly where his feet are, that sense of that he's, he's in the now of this moment, you know, rock concerts where bands play the new stuff, in air quotes, that's kind of like the joke that nobody wants to go to that show, right? We sit through the new stuff to hear the hits. Shut up and play the hits. If we're not screaming pig, that's what we're screaming. But the crowd at the Beacon cheered loudest for the new stuff, which was really cool to see. I think AJ turned to me and noticed, noted that a couple of times. This new stuff, these new songs, they're broody, they're funny, they're, they're mournful, uh, they're, they're beautiful. They're, it's two guitars intertwined with a pedal steel, sometimes a fiddle, you know, bass and drums. Bob's on the piano. People were digging it. Even I with a chemically free bloodstream some 30 years after Pink Floyd, found it really easy to just tune out anybody being ejected for taking photos or having seat confusion or the overserved mom a few rows back going, woohoo, every song break. I turned all that out, well, most of it, and I just kind of marveled at 80-year-old Bob Dylan up there getting it done, playing the music, and, and playing it with, with fire and personality and bringing it to the people and the band kind of playing in a way that bands don't play live music really anymore. You know, I don't know how to explain it except to say that in the simplicity of the presentation, there's an attention to the detail of the actual performance that's stripped down, yet it has the layered kind of textual feeling of the album. So there's, there are not a lot of amplifiers or pedals on the floor for the guitar players. There's not a lot of effects being used. It's just really highly skilled musicians playing relatively simple songs, but Dylan songs. And it's, it's something to behold. You know, Dylan was in great voice. He's, he's maybe a little frailer physically than I remember in 2019. He kind of always had one hand on the piano or one hand on a mic stand. But, you know, like I said, it's a little dark on the stage and he's 80 years old, but the voice, the emotion, the passion, the humor, the rage, it's, it's all present. And it's, it's fully present in the now in this excellent and vital new album and its songs. And it's, listen, Bob Dylan doesn't need to be out. He's not, a, he's not one of those acts that has to go out on the road in order to make a living, right? I mean, he just sold... He's one of these artists doing these deals now where 
you know, late career artists in their 70s and their 80s are selling all of the rights in their music to investment firms that are snapping this up. And Dylan just did this, rumored to be, you know, a deal in the realm of some $300 million. So if you were 80 years old and you had $300 million and you probably already had a couple hundred million dollars before then, would you be playing 80 shows a year from a tour bus around the world? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But he's doing it. He's Bob Dylan. It's worth seeing. It's, it's worth letting the songs kind of work their magic. So when the show ended, AJ and I stood outside the Beacon. It was another warm night. We kind of watched all the Dylan fans streaming from the venue. Like I said, it was 945. What more could you wish for? Lee Ronaldo from Sonic Youth was there sharing a smoke with a young fan who appeared to recognize him. There was a couple groups of guys that looked like two different bands meeting up with each other and kind of peacockishly eyeing each other, uh, seeing who's who. It was just a great environment to watch these people flow out of the show. So after the show, I think AJ and I both really wanted to run into Deborah and her two friends from the 1965 Newport concert. I really wanted to hear what she thought all these years later, what kind of experience they'd had at the show. She hadn't seen Dylan since 1965. And I had told AJ that, you know, it occurred to me that the backdrop and the staging of the show probably felt very familiar to her from the types of rock shows and the way they were staged in the 60s when artists wore suits and stood on relatively unadorned stages with these tall curtains and really nothing to hide behind except the songs and the performances. I was so curious to hear what she thought, but they never appeared. She and her friends from 1965 had slipped off into the night like Bob Dylan on the never-ending tour. I'm sitting on my terrace Lost in the stars Listening to the sounds of The sad guitars Been thinking it all over And I Thought it all through I've made up my mind to give myself to you. 